I am joined by Milton Berg of MB Advisors. Milton is a technical analyst with a unique approach to studying the markets. He focuses on turning points. And as you will see by the end of the interview, I think his process is unlike any other. Milton, great to have you here. How are you? Jack, how are you doing? Haven't spoken to you in a while. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Milton, tell us a little bit about your framework. Uh, how do you go about analyzing market? It is, it is technical, so rather than fundamental, but uh, yeah, what, what do you look for and what does it, how do you identify a turning point? What is a turning point? Okay, well, the technical analysis we use is not the kind of technical analysis that, that most technicians use. Uh, you know, you know, we don't generally look at moving averages, moving average crossings, and um, yeah. We try, if you want to have an edge in the market, you really have to try to discover things that most people aren't looking at. Of course, there'll be some overlap. And uh, I'd say most technicians and even fundamentalists actually are trend followers. They get in the markets when they feel the market's been doing well and they get out when they feel the market's been doing poorly. And we're not trend followers. We try to catch turning points. Turning points is if the market's making a top, we like to get out or get short within days of the top. And if the market's making a low, we like to get in and get long within days of the low. So the indicators we've developed are those that are able to pinpoint market lows. Now, some of these indicators are very non-conventional because besides using market data, we also use uh, data that uh, has proven that has uh, proven to work. For example, we use what we call cyclic data, lunar data, and uh, these these fortunately for this kind of data it goes back. Uh, the history of the world, and certainly to history of stock markets, so we're able to uh, study phenomena that have affected affect the markets. I know it sounds strange to talk about lunar data, but when people talk about seasonality, they really talk about solar data. When we talk about a January effect, well, that's just a, that's just solar data. January comes after the as the winter begins. But the reason I say this is we got long China on the exact day of the low. We took a twenty five percent position MCHI, which is an ETF. And that bottomed on um, interday, bottomed on October 24th, and that was one of our cycle dates. And they, they had declined 12% into that low. And I saw many other analysts say, oh, wow, momentum's against you. Don't invest China. And besides the fact that it was way oversold and the fact that sentiment was way on the bearish side, we also had one of our cycle days exactly on that day. We actually had a double cycle day something called the spiral calendar or autumn panic day, and went 25% long MCHI, which is up 50%, more than 50% since then. That's just one sort of an example. We're very, very bullish on China. Mm-hmm. China has a government. There's not much political discussion in that government. It's basically a dictatorship. And they've made it clear that they like to see the markets move up. They made it clear they like to reduce bankruptcies, like to see the real estate uh, start, start to stop declining. It's been declining for over a year now, month after month. So when you have a dictatorship on the side of a market, after the market has declined 61%, it's kind of a good reason to buy. And on top of that, we had our, our, our cyclic and technical indicators suggesting a buy. Of course, there are many gaps off that low. So there are many, many conventional types of uh, indicators suggesting that's the low. But that's the reason I mentioned MCHI, because we, we, we look for turning points, and we got in exactly on the day of the turning point, exactly on the day of the low. And I know many conventional analysts says you can't buy now, because momentum is against you. Now, we don't use momentum uh, necessarily after a long move. We use short-term concentrated momentum at the beginning of a move. So, for example, historically, um, the S&P 500 um, 
has gained 7.4% at a minimum within, um, within the first month or two of a major market low. That's a momentum indicator. We try to pinpoint it because usually it takes place within the first 10 days of a low. Unfortunately, this latest low in the market did not see this type of momentum off the low. Uh, you saw it off the, off the lows in 1970. You saw it off the lows in 1974. You saw this type of momentum right off the lows in 1982, again in 1984, again in 1987. You saw it off the lows in 2002 and 2003, and you saw it in 2008. You saw it in 2015 and 2020, but you did not see it off this low. This has been a very extended low. Okay, so sorry, Milton, I I just want to interrupt um, because I want to make sure I I get it. You're saying that when a stock market bottoms and then viciously surges, such I think as it did in October of 2022, and as as done in in other bear markets, that is a a sign um, to buy or or backtest. It's one of the indicators of a market low. It did not take place this time. We We look at turning points. By turning point, we look at indicators you know, that, that, that suggest a turning point on a specific day. This indicator is a five-day indicator. The five-day rate of change in the S P 500 at major market lows, I don't want to say always, has nearly always exceeded 7.4% on a five-day basis. The highest we got this time was 6.4% off the June lows, I believe. We did not get 7.4%. You may still get it, but it's not as close to the low. You should get it really within days of the low. That's one thing that's lacking, but nothing is perfect. We have so many indicators that gave us buy signals. We have over 60 indicators that gave us buy signals since the October lows. We actually preceding the October lows since off the September 30th lows. I'm just mentioning one of the things that has not yet signaled. It may yet signal, but it has not yet signaled uh, uh, to this point. That's something I want to mention. But since you asked me for the process, my process is to find indicators that, that signal within days of a low. This is one of the type of indicators that usually signals within days of a low. It happens to be, did not signal during this particular um during this particular market. Now, I, I, I want to suggest that most analysts, really all analysts are making a very, very big mistake about this market. First of all, there are many bears out there who think the lows aren't in yet. They may be right, but, you know, we had a, uh, we, we don't mind if the lows aren't in yet as long as we catch the rallies within the bear market. We think the lows are in. But many analysts don't even think the lows are in. We think the lows are in. Secondly, we don't think the market made its major low in October. We actually think the major low is in, je- in June. The, 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 the panic to the downside did not take place into the October lows. The panic into the downside took place into the June lows. And contrary to, to uh, what we expected by fundamental analysts, the exact day of the low, which was June 16th, 2022, was the exact day that the Fed first raised interest rates by three quarters of a basis point. Now, why do I call that the day of the low? The S&P has not declined more than 3% off that low of June 16th. Well, people are acting as if we're in a major bear market and the markets continue lower and lower and lower into October or into November, into, into December in the, in the NASDAQ. In reality, the Russell 2000, which has a broad index 2,000 stocks, the low-cap stocks, they are 2,000 stocks, never got below its June 16th low. The S&P never got below its June 16th low by more than 3%. Now, we use, a, 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 in, in our analysis, we use a threshold of 3.75%. In other words, if the market makes low historically, and held that low within 3.75% below that low, that, that, that is considered a test. So we had two tests off the October low. We had an initial test in September 30th, but a secondary test on October uh, 12th. And each of those tests were took place within 3% of the June low. So we consider the market actually bottoming in June on the day 
that the Fed first raised interest rates. Now, of course, not only did the Fed raise rates on the short term, the short term rates, long term rates also uh, um, uh, increased dramatically since June. Yet the stock market held the June lows. This is there's many there's major underlying power in the stock market. The stock market is not collapsing the way people would expect it to collapse, considering recession, considering interest rate rises, considering don't fight the Fed. So we have many reasons to be bullish on the on, on the market, and the market itself is telling us, hey, we did not decline. Why did why did we not decline in the face of a rising interest rates? Both short term and long term, and in the face of economic recession. Now, people are wondering whether there will be a recession in 2023. I don't understand that question. We had a recession in 2022. We had two consecutive quarters of GDP, of negative GDP, which, by, you know, I'm in the business for a long time, nearly 50 years. By us, that used to define a recession. Now, of course, the NBR hasn't made it official, but they'll probably make it official and say, yes, we had a recession, not in 2023, but in 2022. But one thing we've discovered, the best time to buy stocks is during a recession. The worst time to buy stocks is when the market is anticipating a recession. So even if there's a recession in 2023, there's not, no reason to be out of stocks. And in fact, the fact that there's so many fundamentals out there that are afraid to buy stocks because of the impending recession, that allows us as technicians to get into the stock market while most people are fundamentals are not yet in. And that's why we get in early. Under your framework, yeah, the recession has already happened. That's... Uh... Yeah, it's really happened. Sure, it's really happened. And now we're coming out of the recession the way I see it. But even if I'm wrong, the recession is, is going to start tomorrow. The market has already bottomed. The market's bottomed in an early recession or sometimes before recession. I mean, people were anticipating this recession, of course, for the last nine months. And people anticipate, some people were anticipating a, a, a depression, the pressure collapse. I mean, you know, you see it all the time. You look at Twitter and you, I'm sure you've interviewed many people who are totally uh, think the whole world is going to collapse. Now, I have a theory here that let's assume the world will collapse. Let's assume we're going to go from the major inflationary period we had for the last year into a major deflationary, depressionary period ahead. Well, when, when, when economies shift from inflation to, 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 to depression, you have a period of, you have a Goldilocks period. That shift from inflation to depression gives you a period that looks like, hey, it looks like stability. You know, inflation is coming down. It's flattening. People don't realize it's heading for deflation, but that period is a period where stocks should have blow-off action. I mean, you know, you realize if you go from from heat from uh, from boiling hot to freezing, there's one period when you're comfortable, right? <laughs> so even if you're going to have a major major depression, which means deflationary deep, deep, a deflationary depression, since you're coming off inflation, the one short period of time, maybe less six months to a year, which things seem to be pretty good. And that's the time of the market will rally. So I'm not suggesting that these pundits out there who are very negative on the economy are wrong. I could see a Great Depression uh, beginning in, in late 2023. That doesn't mean the stock market is going to go down. The stock market, the Nasdaq has already gone down 35%. The, the, the semiconductors already gone down over 45%. They've anticipated something. And, and now we, we may have a period that looks, looks kind and gentle, even though maybe heading for a depression. Now, I don't, I'm not projecting that. I'm just trying to even those pundits out there who are looking for depression and therefore they get out of stocks, they're really wrong because when you shift from inflation to depression, the period which stocks do well, and I think you're going to see that in early 2023. Well, Milton, you definitely are right about the, the following, that the broad S&P 500 index has held firm 
relative to what many bears, myself included, would have expected. Yes, you know, Carvana's down 99% and, and individual stocks that are speculative, are they have you know, collapsed. Um, however, the broad index, whether Russell 2000, S&P 500, have been very robust. And there is this period of tr- that people are calling transitory Goldilocks, where all risk assets, including gold, Bitcoin, everything is, is going up. I mean, as we're recording on the uh, morning of January 24th, that is the play in, in the market. Milton, if I were to ask you what... Um, because a lot of people compare uh, the, the bear market of last year, whether you want to call it a bear market or not, um, to the dot-com crash from 2000 to 2003. Mm-hmm. And that was a brutal sort of uh, shedding of, of, of speculative excess that took many yeah. you know, years to unwind. Yes. What about the, the past year's price action that you've seen that you think is more bullish than a lot of the bears think uh is is stronger than what you saw in the 2000s because you know you yes. you're a veteran okay. of the business you've been you've right. been uh, you know paying attention the to this question thing for a long is time. why is this different than the 2000 question number one yeah. i'm going to answer that question before i want to point out you gave a very nice history we both gave a history of, of why this market looks stronger than you'd expect we're forgetting to mention european markets i mean european markets are i think the uk is near an all-time high uh, let me just check that uk index is uh yeah, and the UK index is approaching an all-time high. Uh, it's high in, in, in 2018 was 7,903. It's currently 7,765. So not just U.S. markets that are very resilient in the face of the face of war in Ukraine, in the face of uh, energy shortages. Yeah, and I as mean, you said, the Chinese market is absolutely on fire. I mean, up something so like yeah. And guess what? And I, we were the only ones I know that got in the day of the low. Yeah, because the only ones I know that do turning point analysis. Most uh, people out there need. Crossings of the 50-day to the 200-day, and they need confirmation. They need trend lines to be broken. You know, you do that, it's a loser's game. Everybody's doing the same thing. It's really another way of saying, I will invest when I'm comfortable. That's really what they're saying. You have to invest when you're not comfortable, but that's also a loser's game. You know, Great Depression, there are many days where you're not comfortable, the market's getting lower. You have to have indicators that are built to 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 um, find these turning points. That's what we've done. I, I mean, you know, I'm not a young man. I've been in the business for... I don't know how many years, but let's say more than 40 years. And I, I originally started out as a strict fundamentalist. And I really say everyone else is a fundamentalist and we, no one has an edge over the other. But uh, what I did is I created my unique form of technical analysis. Now, why is it not like 2000? First of all, I don't know it's not like 2000. As I say, maybe we'll have a, a, another 90, uh, a, uh, 50, 60, 70% collapse in the NASDAQ. I don't want to make projections, but I would just say so far, it doesn't look like 2000. Number one. The 2000 period had two, two recessions over the period. People don't realize that. If you actually look at the data, there were two sharp, short recessions from 2000 to 2003. And people are still debating whether we had a recession yet now, number one. Number two is we're forgetting, and we should not forget, that from uh, February to April, through the beginning of February 2020, central banks all over the world went crazy injecting liquidity into the world economy. Now, they didn't start doing it that. They started injecting liquidity in the world economy in 2008, 2009, 2010. They did it for over a decade, but they had a blow-off, a call it a blow-off in, in, in central bank policy. They just went crazy in injecting liquidity. I'm unbelievable. I mean, you had Germany having zero percent, negative zero percent, negative Long-term interest rates, I mean, it's just crazy. You, know, you lent money to the government with the guarantee they'll pay you less money than you gave them. I mean, it's absolutely weird. And that liquidity has not yet been um, uh, drained. Let's put it that way. Liquidity has not yet been drained. 
So probably the reason why these markets have not declined as much as they have, the reason why the UK market is approaching an all-time high is because the excess liquidity that was injected into the market is still having a positive effect on stock prices, which prevents it from going down as it should. And despite the fact that central banks worldwide are claiming that they're draining the liquidity, they really haven't drained the liquidity. We still have a, a, a what do you call an inflationary blow-off. So I think I think that um, and, and that's another reason why it's not like 2000. Like in 2000, they actually were, were, were lowering rates, were, were raising rates for a while until finally you had a, 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 a collapse. And, um, you know, no two markets are the same. There were, I think there's really more speculation in the year two, from 2000, 2008 on the broad market than you had currently. But there are, you mentioned Carvana. You know, Carvana is a great example. I know some great intelligent investors, one of the greatest investors in the world, who had a huge position in Carvana. He, of course, he got out of it because he, he's a trader rather than, you know, being stuck with a position. But people, some clients of mine who are the greatest investors in, in, in the world who got caught up in some of the hype in some of these uh, stocks over the last uh, year or so. Um, I was one of the first people to recommend Tesla, by the way, and I got out way, way before the blow-off in Tesla. I, I actually had charts going back when Tesla first went public showing that the action off the public offering was almost exactly similar to the uh, action off the Cisco's public offering. I know Cisco was the greatest stock of the dot-com boom, and Tesla is the greatest stock of the latest boom. So they actually, although I projected that, I got out early, but you know there are there are comparisons. But I would say no. So far, the market doesn't look like it did in two thousand. But yet, it may may turn out to be worse in two thousand. I mean, I know there are many intelligent people, analysts out there, say we have another eighty five percent decline ahead of us. But right now, for right now, we're long. Right now, we've been saying the market bottomed in June. We say the market made a secondary test in September, a secondary test in October. Nasdaq made its low in, in, in December. We have so many buy signals off those lows. But there's no reason to be at this point to worry that the market's going to decline. If it does decline, maybe the decline begins in, in, the, in the middle of next year after we're up another 30, 20 or 30 percent. We made an official projection for the SP 500 of 46.50 sometime in 2023, and we're sticking by that. We think we'll see 46.50, and we make projections based on the history of our indicators. We have so many indicators that generally buy signals that the median return. Uh, of all the indicators would be 30% off the October lows, which takes us roughly to 4650. So you said, unlike in the early 2000s, uh, there's, there's not going to be a recession. So that's a macroeconomic. Two, reces- two recessions. There were two, two recessions. recessions. Right. But just, just sticking to the technicals, what about the price action now, whether it's advanced decline, whether it's trend, which I forget what it is. You saw the classical market bottom in June. If you look at a chart, the S&P 500, and you, you know, as we speak, I'm going to bring up some charts on my Bloomberg just to get what's going on. The S&P 500 had, a, 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 on, on June 9th, June 10th, June 13th, three, day, three down days, three gap down days, the, the kind of panic you see into final market low. And on June 16th is when the Fed finally started raising interest rates at three quarters of a percent. That was a panic low. And um, so, so you know, everything else since then was a test. Of course, you had an initial bull market rally of nearly 14% into August, August 16th. We haven't exceeded the August 16th highs in most indices. Sorry, but say that again. Sorry, Milton. The, the August, from, from, from the low on June 16th to August 16th, um, from that low, the S&P, I'll give you an exact number, the S&P gained some uh, 18.93% intraday low to intraday high. We can see that the first rally in this bull market. Now, we want to see that the market exceed that level. To conf- you know, people wanted the market to exceed the, the August 16th level. But um, I think it will. I think it will by, 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 by a large margin. But um, 
basically we see the price action as such that we, it's a it's what's called a broad market base a broad market bottom first low june 16th the second low basically october 12th nasdaq making an unconfirmed low meaning no other index made a low with the nasdaq except for the arkk but no other index made a low with the nasdaq on on, on december 28th this is a broad low uh inflation is clearly coming down and we wrote a piece in september saying inflation will come down Based on based again on our, our turning point analysis, we we looked at uh, the June peak in inflation as the turning point in inflation, and for all these reasons, we think the market will be headed higher. But as I say, I'm not making a projection that there's a great new bull market, a great new economic growth. I think the liquidity that's that, that the central banks um, 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 uh, injected to the market hasn't totally been drained. I think that's that's giving that's goosing up markets. Uh, you look at European markets acting very well, despite the fact that you know European most European economies are socialistic. They really shouldn't uh, have long-term growth. In fact, many European markets peaked in 2007, 2008, never made a new new high since then because you know socialism does not go along with economic wealth and prosperity. The United States is, is is on the path to socialism, not quite there yet. So I think that uh, we'll still be a leading market, although people are arguing we won't be a leading market because we've outperformed for so many years. We outperform because we're capitalistic. Capitalism will outperform socialism hands down over any period of time you look at. But now we're maybe we're moving towards socialism. That won't that won't happen. But at this point, we're bullish on U.S. We're bullish on foreign markets. We're certainly bullish on China. J- Japan has some problems. We're bullish on Japan as well. Now you know Japan, its market peak was 1989. Can you imagine? You know, people talk about, you know, Jeremy Siegel, I don't want to mention names, but he, he talks about, you know, stocks always do well over the long term. Well, Japan had a long term from 1989 to now. <laughs> if you bought at the peak in 89, it's certainly not doing well. So the reality is that you can't just make any broad claims that stocks do well over the long term. You know, basically you have to look at markets day to day. And um, at this point, markets worldwide really, really look good. Why? I can speculate that we'll come out of recession, we'll have some economic growth, uh, but most likely the 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 liquidity injected is still there. And maybe sometime in the future, uh, the liquidity will be uh, drained and we'll see a major, major collapse, a major depression, but we're not there at this point. Mm-hmm. And so the strength that you're seeing in terms of the technicals is, you said, a broad-based bottoming. So let me give you some of my indicators. Okay, now, of course, we you know we have our, our clients are mostly um, um, how do you put it? We're not, we don't have retail clients unless they're very wealthy individuals willing to pay what we ask for. We ask for quite a high sum. I, yeah. I only started the, the Twitter account. You know, I never was on Twitter. I, you said you see me on Twitter. I only started Twitter in order to give people a flavor of, of what we do. But we're really only responding to institutions that contact us through through Twitter. There are many institutions worldwide. We don't have a large sales force, so many institutions worldwide weren't able to contact, or maybe we contact by email and they ignore our email. So I figured the Twitter account will give us some flavor for what we do. And we've gotten a lot of uh, feedback uh, from mostly retail, but some institutions. That's why we're on Twitter. We're not trying to give away our secrets on Twitter. Twitter is maybe only uh, less than 10% of the indicators we look at. But for example, I'll give you some idea of, of the kind of indicators we, we look at and kind of see a signal just since October. For example, Trin. Trin is a measurement of downside volume versus upside volume in relationship to the number of issues that traded up and down in the day. In other words, a trend above one basically means that there's more volume in down stocks on a relative basis than up stocks. A trend below one means there's more volume in up stocks than there is in down stocks. Now, trend, our indicators look at trend extremes. Our turning point indicators are looking for extremes, extremes in trend. We really don't care about the... Um, 
general levels of trin, unless trin is at some sort of an, of an extreme. Now, um, you had a trin above four on October 3rd. Now, October 3rd was just a couple of days after September 30th low. As you know, many of the broad indices in the United States stopped bottomed in September as opposed to the October 12th low of the S&P. I think the mid-caps bottomed September 26th. Anyway, October 3rd, just a few days after September 26th low in the, in the, um, in the, in the mid-cap index, Trin was above four. Now, Trin was only above four 10 times before in history. Each time Trin was below four, each time except for one time, you know, it was nine out of 10 times, it was a, a major bull move followed. Looking at the median gain within the next 12 months, median ga- maximum gain within the next 12 months over all of these te- previous 10 times in which Trin was above four is 21.84%. There's only one instance where it's only 8.58%. So, but the median is 21.84%. So, that, that was a turning point indicator. It signaled within a few days of the, the September lows in the, in the small cap indices. And of course, within a couple of days before the final low in the S&P, but just a couple of days after the September 30th low, as you know, the final low on October 12th was only a quarter of a percent below the September 30th low. So it's really, uh, it's a flip. You know, you can either say the market bottomed on September 30th, or you could say it bottomed on October 12th. We say it bottomed on June 16th. But no matter how you look at it, September, October was a major low for the S&P 500, and we got this, this signal October 3rd within days of the low, there's a trend above four. So again, what the trend above four means, on an overwhelming basis, volume on in the stock market was on stocks that were down in the day, which means it, it, there was panic selling in stocks that were down in the day. Now, panic selling takes place at the end of a move, at the end of a bear market, and that actually took place October 3rd, 2022. Now, on October Milton, 4th- Milton, so, so, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry to interrupt you, but just, okay, so uh, trend- uh, the higher the trend, the more volume there is in the stocks that are down. Down relative to stocks that are up. In other words, we're looking at a ratio of, of the number of stocks down to the number of stocks up. Like, for example, if the ratio of sto- if there's two times as many stocks down on the day than up on the day, two times as many stocks down on the day, and there's four times as much volume on the down stocks and the up stocks, that'll give you a trend of two. Because the ratio of, of, of volume in the down stocks is twice as much as the ratio of down stocks to up stocks. Got it? Ratio of four is a big extreme, only seen 10 times in the past. Got it? Got it. Okay. And uh, why might why is that a bottom signal? Because you know, isn't it true it's, that sometimes it's a sign of panic? Can... It's a sign of panic. Right. First of all, you realize you don't see this often. Historically, you've seen it at bottoms, number one. But secondly, the market bottom is late September, uh, September 30th. The market makes a low in the SP. All of a sudden, the market's rallying a couple of days. And during that rally, the stocks that are down shows an increased volume in selling. That basically tells you psychology and the action is panic selling. Panic selling represents a low. If you're going to panic sell, you should panic sell on January 4th, 2022, day after the top. That's when you should panic sell. You don't panic sell if the SP is down 25%, NASDAQ down 35%. This is a sign of a low. And historically, it's been a sign of a low. I said eight out of, nine out of 10 times, the market teach straight up after, after those signals. And the median gain has been after that uh, type of trend has been, um, has been uh, as I said, 21.84% within the next 12 months. Now, that's not enough. That's just one signal. A signal, you know, we have many, many signals. That's just one. On the following day, it was an update in the market, and the S&P showed 293 times as much upside volume as downside volume. It's October 4th, 2022. Again, let me say this. Upside volume, meaning the volume in stocks that were up on the day, on October 4th, just the day after a trend of above four meaning, just the day after this panic selling in the stocks that were declining, day following day, 
there was 293 times as much volume in the upside stocks as downside stocks. I think technicians call that a reversal. Mm-hmm. When they have panic selling, the next day you show panic buying. You see that in commodities all the time, when you see spike lows in commodities or spike peaks in commodities, when you see increasing volume on the downside followed by increasing volume on the upside. Here I'm talking about the ratio volume to the downside, the ratio volume to the upside. Anyway, it was 293 to one. That's such an extreme, it only happened once before. And it's very difficult to make an indicator have something that only happened once before. So we decided to, I wasn't sure we decided, we decided this probably 15 years ago when we created this indicator, and we used the 100 to one level as a threshold. So we look at how often in the past, if you excuse me, I'm gonna take a drink, I'm a, a bit hoarse. For sure, for how many sure. times in the past, how many times in the past did you see 100 times as much upside volume in the S&P on the advancing stocks versus the volume in the declining stocks? And that only happened four times in the past, and the median maximum return within 12 months was 30.45%. Remember that you never had a, you never had a bear market follow, you never had a significantly lower low. The maximum uh, lower, and you never saw a low of great, more than 6% below the, below the prior low. And, the, and, and, and the returns, give you an example. In 2018, it's a return of 31%. 2012, 29%. 2011-22%. 1982-56% within 12 months. The medium is 30.45%. So, you know, so uh, this is just a bullish indicator. And it's a reversal indicator. I'm not even considering a reversal. If I create an indicator, when you see a trend above four, followed by 100 to 1 upside volume, the answer would be zero. First time you ever saw this type of reversal. It's such a major reversal. But just looking at the day, we have 100 to, 100 to 1 upside volume, the SP 500. It's a buy signal. And we, again, we were, we're, we're, we're long based on this buy signal. Hey there. Sorry to interrupt. Announcement. Blockworks is hosting an event called Permissionless in September. It's a crypto event. It's in Austin, Texas. We did Permissionless in 2022. It was the biggest and best DeFi event in the world. And this year, lightning will be striking twice. Historically, our ticket prices have gone up about 10 times from the day the tickets go live to the day before the event. If you're like me and bad at math, that's 900%. So it might be savvy for attendees to consider buying tickets now rather than later. If you're listening to this and you're saying, Hey, Jack, I'm not really into this whole crypto thing. I want to hear about the Fed. I want to hear about the dollar, Bretton Woods, three, four, five. I hear you. I'm not telling you to buy a ticket and the interview will resume momentarily. However, if you are into the crypto thing and permissionless is something you might want to attend, what I'm saying is there's no time like the present because tickets will go up and if history is any guide, prices will go up a ton. Anyway, the link is in the description and you can get an additional 10% off by using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. Milton, I've heard it said that the most vicious one-day rallies are within bear markets. So, you know, during 2008, 2009, that's when you have the S&P 500 up 4 or 5%, when pretty much every stock is, is up. It's not during a, bear, a bull market where every single stop is up. To what that degree is, is that true? That is very true. That is very true. But that's the problem. People who follow markets look at the obvious. And the obvious is that when the market is showing... A great one-day return in a bull market, in a bear market, is usually a failed bear market. Beginning of a failed bear market rally. That's true. We're not looking at the the price change. We're looking at the volume re- relationship, which is not obvious. You have to have a computer. You have to have data. We have thirty thousand indicators we follow on our computer. I can't follow it on my on my own. I try to, but I can't. You can only follow nine thousand in your head. <laughs> Whatever. We have our, our computer every day uh, uh, spits out the aberrations. This is an aberration. So, yes, 
Many times during bear markets, you saw the market. Let me see what the market gained on October 4th. Let's give you an example. SPX index. I'll give you an example. October 4th, 2022, the SP 500 gained 3.06%. That's not, you've seen that before, right? Let's see what the, let's see what the uh, NASDAQ did. NASDAQ gained uh, on that same day, October 4th. NASDAQ gained uh, 3.34%. That's not, you've seen that before. It doesn't stand out. But what does stand out is that the volume was 293 to 1 on the upside. So we're looking for what's not obvious. So I agree with you totally. Bear market rallies very often have one day great rate of change, one day great rate of change. That's not the signal. The signal is looking at something that's not obvious, which is the ratio of upside volume to downside volume. And this is what gave us a buy signal. So I appreciate your question. It's a, it's a fair question. Not only is it a fair question, it really highlights what we do. We don't look at the obvious. We look at the not obvious. The not obvious is that you had a 293 to 1 upside downside volume ratio. In the past, never led to a continued bear market. In the past, I mean, twice in the past, it was that the, it was, um, the market didn't even, didn't even decline more than 0% below that day. But generally, I give you the, you know, I gave you the years, 2082, 2011, 2012, 2018, and October 4th, 2022. That's another indicator we saw off the October lows. Now, they give you another indicator, only signaled once before. So you can really discount it because something that only happened once before, most people will say that's not an indicator. But we say we're looking for this type of aberrations. If it happened once before, and when it happened once before, it was at the bottom of a major decline. And now at the near after a major decline, you see this indicator. Perhaps, perhaps this is significant. Now, you're not going to know it's significant maybe until decades later or centuries later or millennia later when, when, when analysts in the future are going to track this indicator because we're publishing a book, at the, hopefully at the end of this year, maybe early next year, of all these 30,000 technical indicators I've created. Of course, we're not going to put all 30,000 in the book. We'll maybe have maybe 100 or two. But we're going to show indicators that we've used uh, over the last 40 years or the last 30 years or since I've been a technician to, to, to find turning points. And one of them will be when on a three-day basis, 98% of the SP 500 is at a three-day high. In other words... How often have we seen more than 98% of the 500 stocks in the S&P 500 closing at a three-day high? Right, right. As people look at one-year highs or six-month highs, we're looking at a three-day high. Remember, compact turning point analysis. It only happened once before. Of course, it happened on August 29, 2011. Now, that was a few days after a, a major market low. Now, that wasn't the final low. The, the prior low to August 29, 2011 was tested by 1.1%. 1.81% made a low low in, in October. But basically, it was at the area of a major market low, suggested we're near an area of a low. We had that same signal October 4th, 2022, where the th on a three-day basis, 98% of the SP 500 made a, 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 a new high. Now, of course, as I say, I understand why people will ignore this. They'll discount this. If this is all we saw, we wouldn't trade based on it. But it's kind of aberration, which we believe in the future will suggest and we believe 100 years out from now, when people follow this indicator, they'll find four instances or six instances, and each of these six instances took place perhaps at a major, near a major low. Now, of course, market structures change. We have to remember that. With the proliferation of ETFs and program trading, and future, you know, when I get into the business, there are no S&P 500 futures, no such thing. There certainly were no ETFs, and there's no way to buy all 500 stocks at once. Even institutions wouldn't, would, 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 wouldn't buy all 500 stocks. They couldn't. And if they wanted to, they their, their boards of directors would tell them, well, you can't buy stocks that are doing poorly, you know, which usually are the best performing stocks over the next year. Like I remember in 1974, 
where they started uh, making the SPR hundred index the early in the index. They, they started making index funds. The first index was left out Chrysler and a couple of other stocks because those stocks do so poorly. How can you put that in an index fund? You can't have a five hundred stock portfolio that includes Chrysler. Of course, Chrysler proved to be one of the best performing stocks of the next decade. Not that it's the greatest company or so oversold that it did well. So the point being is, we couldn't buy indexes. Now you can buy indexes. There are ETFs, there are programs, there are futures. So I can't say what you see today will take place in the future because I don't know how the market will change. I mean, it went from trading in, in, in eighths to trading in pennies. It also affects some of the indicators. But I still think that the fact that you saw 98% of stocks uh, at a three-day high only once before in history at a, a near major low, and you saw it again October 4th, is bullish and so forth to bullish. That took place within days of a low. That's another indicator we look at. Um, I can go through many more indicators. I don't mind. I'm, I think it's pretty interesting. What do you think, Jack? I want to ask you about breadth, which I think is the, you know, if there are 500 uh, stocks in the S&P 500, if 251 of them are up, that's not that strong breadth. But if 495 of them, that's that's very strong breadth. So what is the breadth within the S&P 500 right now or, or over the past few months? And also that that incredibly rare trend reading of 293 Times oh, upside, upside downside volume. That's a trend. Raise your upside downside volume. We've seen many upside downside volume signals. Sorry, Milton. My question is how dependent on that is the breadth that on that day, you know, 496 of the stocks or something. It matter more. because the ratio, let's say you have breadth. Let's say you had five. If, there are actually 505 stocks in the SP 500. People yep, yep. don't realize that. Let's say 504 stocks were up and one stock was down, right? So you'd expect the ratio of, of upside volume to downside volume to be 504 to one, just like the ratio of of upside issues, the downside issue is 504 to 1. But it's not the case. You see, the case is, is is you have to, you know, for example, a large stock like Apple will have greater volume than a small stock. Mm-hmm. So there, there there are many, many nuances to what we're looking at. So, so yes, um, um, the 400 to 1, the 293 to 1 upside volume is an aberration that should not have taken place unless it's a major change going on in the market. It's just, it's just too rare. It's not common. And, and, and the fact is uh, that there's ETFs trading has not led to 293 to 1. You don't see an increase in the, as I say, you um, if you look, if you don't see an increase in, in upside downside volume uh, ratios to, to that extent uh, since uh, program trading has begun, ETF trading has begun. But let's talk about breadth in general. Um, we had the, on, on October 28th, we had our first breadth buy signal of this of this, uh, this market, October 28, 2022, not just looking at the S&P, we look at the S&P and we add small cap issues to it as well. It's a broad index we look at. And that showed on a 10-day basis, it showed 10 times as many upside, it showed two ti- 2.04 as many stocks to the upside as to the downside on a 10-day basis, which is a breath thrust buy signal. Now, many, many bull marks in the past have begun with a breast, a, 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 this type of a buy signal. 1962 sort, 1966 sort, 1970 sort, 1974, 1976, 1980, uh, 1982, 1984, did not see it, but a, a, a boom of 1985 sort, 1987, 1991, 1992, 2003, 2008, 2009, 2000, off the, off the 2010 flash correction, you had a 2.0, you had a 2.1 upside downside value. You saw it, a, a, a failed signal in July 2011. They only failed signal we have, but you saw it again a buy signal in 2013, a few days off the low. You saw it in 2016, 
uh, a few days off the loan in the NASDAQ and so on and so forth. Well, you saw that signal October 28, 2022. And the, um, we've seen in many, we've seen 37 signals in the past. The medium upside gain over the next 12 months, maximum gain has been 20.16%. So yes, you, you've seen breath. Now we look, we're not looking at, most people look at the advanced decline line for confirmation. That's a nice thing to look at. We look at it too. We have no indicators based on the broad advanced decline line for a few reasons. First of all, because the broad advanced decline is, is looked at by everybody, so it's an obvious indicator. Obvious indicators don't work because everybody looks at it. Secondly, we're looking for turning points. For turning points, you need concentrated indicators. So the 10-day concentration of the AD line gave us a buy signal on October 28th. Now, how many days was October 28th from the low of October 12th? Let's count it. October 28th was 1, 2, 3, 4, only 13 days off the low. Now, we like to buy, find the buy signal within seven days of the low, but when you have a 10-day breath signal, you can't, you're not going to get it within seven days of the low. So we got it within 14, 13 days of the low, which is fine. So uh, that's 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 one of the breath buy signals we got. We also got another breath buy signal um, um, here in January. To us, it's the second breath buy signal. Most analysts consider it the first breath buy signal of the of the of the bull market. We got this. We got a signal on. Let me give you the exact date. We got a signal on January twelfth, where the uh, Nasdaq ten day advances over ten day declines one point seventy to one. That has happened in NASDAQ eight times in the past. The median maximum return in the S&P 500 over the next 12 months has been 21.35%, with only one failed signal. The failed signal, not that the market went down, it just didn't gain much over the next 12 months. It gained 5.67%, although it only declined 5%. It was sort of a balance. But this is a great indicator. Um, um, uh, seven of the last eight times, it led to major bull moves, and uh, the median gain, including the, the gain of 5%, was 21.35%. And then we also had the same day, we had a 1.9%, 1.9 to 1 uh, 10-day advanced decline line in the, in, the, in the New York Stock Exchange, which is a, a double of the signal we had back in, uh, in, in, um, in, in October. October, the signal was not in the New York Stock Exchange, it was a broad index, was the S&P 500 plus small caps. The, the signal on January 12th was one signal for the NASDAQ, another signal for the New York Stock Exchange. But these are breadth indicators, concentrate indicators, turning point indicators, which are bullish now. Fortunately for us, most people can, do not trade based on this type of action. They need the fundamentals to be in place. By the time the fundamentals are in place, it's too late. I mean, people are still worrying about a recession next year. Until they're convinced there's no recession next year, they're not going to buy stocks, no matter how many of these indicators we get. We've had, I think, 64 buy signals since October 3rd. Let's assume that over the 64 buy signals, Ten of them are bogus. Let's say Milton Berg just, just fudges his numbers. Let's say that's true. Well, you can check my numbers. Or let's say ten of them happen to work in the past, but they won't work in the future. That's possible. But we have 64 indicators constructed the way we construct indicators giving buy signals. Very little reason to believe that the, low be, that, that the market's going to continue lower. And, and Milton, sorry, how many sell signals do you have? Well, can you name a sell signal that you've seen in the last six months? I don't, can't name one. So you have zero sell signals? Zero sell signals. I have what you call potential sell signals. For example, just at yesterday's close, my computer spit out the VXN deviation from trend sell signal. But guess what? That sell signal has, has had a remarkable record in calling bear market rally tops. But it's a terrible record early in bull markets. Basically, what VXN sell signal tells you that the, the VX, VIX on the NASDAQ, which the VXN, had a sharp eight-day decline. 
It did have a sharp eight-day decline. It declined 18% in eight days uh, a few days ago. And that often takes place at the top of the bear market rally. But it all takes place early in bull moves. Since my bullish indicator tell me early in the bull move, I can't call that a sell signal. I call it a potential sell signal. I certainly can't act on it. I can look at it and think about it and get nervous. But I certainly can't act on that indicator because um, because it has many, many false signals. But you tell me, I look all the bears out there. And I say, tell me, what's it? What's, what? I mean, you've seen that. You look at Twitter. I mean, I've never looked at Twitter before. It's very enlightening to me to see how, how so many people out there base their investment decisions on information that really does not have a historical um, uh, basis. For example, you know, anticipation of a recession. I mean, how many economists are successful anticipating recession? Why should the typical retail investor out there not be invested because his advisor tells him there's a recession ahead? I mean, how does his advice know there's a recession ahead? I happen to think we've seen the recession we're coming out of it, but maybe I'm wrong. The recession ahead. How many times have markets rallied when there was a recession ahead? When people thought there was a recession ahead, many times. And many times the recession turns out to be a slowdown rather than a recession when the market rallies. For so sure. And, and a, a perfect example of when the price action was ahead of the markets. And by the time the economic data showed good news, it was already too late, was. Right. March exactly. and April of 2020, when the economy right. was in a recession worldwide and uh, various economic indicators were at their lowest level ever, particularly the labor market. Yeah. But uh, the economy rebounded very sharply in part because of uh, monetary and fiscal stimulus, in part because people were buying a lot of things from home. But that's a perfect example. Uh, my question to you, Milton, is I feel like you have a lot of respect for indicators that have good track records. I would propose to you that the yield curve inversion uh, whether you want to look at the 210 spread or a variety of other spreads, has something cl- pretty close to an unblemished uh, track record right, of forecasting. Right. Forecasting recessions yeah. and forecasting bear markets. Yes. Well, guess what? I did a great job of forecasting this bear market. We had a bear market. The Nasdaq just bottomed in, 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 in December. So the yield curve forecasted a bear market. That's great. That doesn't tell you you have to have a positive, uh, a, a, a positive yield curve before the market bottoms. That's not true. You can, you can market bottom during a negative yield curve. So yes, you, 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 I challenge you to give me a negative indicator. And your answer was, yes, the yield curve. Let's look at the history of the yield curve. Give yeah. me a second. I haven't have the yield curve chart right in front of me someplace. And j- just for the audience, you know, a lot of people, I particularly you know, saw on Twitter, when the yield curve inverted in the spring of 2022, they were saying, oh, this is incredibly bearish or recession is happening now. Whereas I'm looking at a chart just from you know the St. Louis Fed that actually yield curve inversions happen well before uh, the recession, right. the first date, um, suggesting that you know it's possible the recession hasn't even started yet and that we're, we're headed into one. And also, I'd also throw out, uh, uh, Milton, that if we already had a recession, the unemployment rate would be a historically low. So we're focusing on markets, but let's talk about the economy, yield curve. First of all, I'm looking at the three-month T-bill yield to the long-term 30-year Treasury bill, right? Okay? So the yield curve just inverted a couple of months ago. That yield curve just inverted to the level below zero a few months ago. And that anticipated a recession um, for the 2020 recession. It anticipated the 2008-2010 recession, anticipated the 2002-2003 recession, 2000-2002 recession, anticipated a, a, a slowdown in 1990, and so on and so forth. Okay, but uh, as you say, it 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 it, it, it anticipated a recession. Um, we don't know whether the NBR will declare that we had a recession or not. We don't even know that. Maybe they'll declare we had a recession. But uh, the way I see it is, um, looking at my chart, uh, when the yield curve uh, inverts, you're pre- when you get the extreme of the yield curve in conversion, you're pretty close to the to the extreme in the in the in the stock market low. 
So I have no reason to think that just because the yield market curve, that the, the 35% decline in NASDAQ is not sufficient to set, set up the grounds for a bull market. I have no reason to say that. You may argue, uh, but I have no reason looking at the chart of the yield curve to suggest. Now, you ask a very good question. How can I suggest that we already had the recession if, 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 uh, if employment is so great? Well, the employment rate, there are many components to the employment rate. One component of the employment rate is how many people consider themselves unemployed and are looking for a job. And, you know, due to the, as I said, the stimulus that the governments worldwide generated, the blow of stimulus in 2020, including fiscal stimulus, allowed many, many people otherwise be looking for a job to uh, uh, fleece the government of, of government resources and, and, and live off their welfare checks or PPI che- or PPP checks and so on and so forth. So part of the reason unemployment rate is down is because uh, people don't didn't need to go to work. Another reason is because, as I said, I think the stimulus is still there. I think the stimulus you saw in 2020 is still having an effect, which meaning meaning that companies that were able to borrow at zero percent and consumers were able to buy houses houses at at two and a half percent mortgage rates. I think that is still goosey the economy. That is still a positive effect on the economy. So therefore, maybe it didn't affect unemployment, and maybe unemployment will come down a bit. Um, but your question is a valid one as far as the economy is concerned. And maybe it's a valid one as far as my thesis that we've already seen the recession. But I don't think it's a valid one that's to suggest that the market has not yet bottomed. Because we, let's remember, we saw a 45% decline in, in, in the in the socks, in the, in, in the uh, semiconductors. We saw a 36% or so decline in Russell 2000. We saw a 35% decline in the NASDAQ. We saw 99%, as you said, in Carvana. We saw the, the, ARC, the ARC, uh speculative index, you know, the ARKK. Down something like 80%. Yeah, 80%. So, you know, yeah, it's yeah. in the bear market. I mean, why anticipate further bear market? I got to tell you the truth. Uh, not the truth, but there's one great analyst on Wall Street. I'm not going to mention her name. A very large following who put out a report on October 12th, 2000, excuse me, October 24th, 2022, saying, avoid China. Momentum is too far, too, too low in China. And I wrote this, I wrote an email to this, to this analyst. Hey, listen, China is down 61%. It's down 12% in one day, in the last day. And you are always willing to say, buy the S&P on any day is down 5%, you know, because it's oversold. Why are you not willing to say buy China on a day is down 12%? I said, in fact, my technical indicator is suggesting that this is the exact low. It turned out to be the exact low. So when you look at markets, so you know, look at markets, it's different than look at the economy. In many cases, now as I, I always say in interviews, I always say when I speak to my clients, on any given day, going back to the 40 years I've been in the business, on any given day, I can make a bullish scenario or bearish scenario. On any busy given day, I can tell you why we're headed for a Great Depression, headed for a recession, or headed for a slowdown. On any given day, I can tell you why we're headed for a, a boom, a, a moderate gain, or inflationary gain. I, it's, it's always there. There's always data there, especially when you're trying to anticipate a future change. In other words, so many analysts, rather than look at what's happening now, oh, the Fed's going to loosen, the Fed's going to tighten. Well, what has it? You don't know what the Fed's going to do. There's a bunch of people, academics, are going to make a decision. No one could know what they're going to do. You can't base your investment decisions on what, what you think the Fed might do. How about the invest, in, in, basing your investment decisions on what the market is telling you, what the data is telling you, what the Fed has already done? Now, to me, the Fed has already raised rates three-quarters of a percent numerous times. Inflation has already come down since, uh, since uh, uh, its peak in June. The rate of inflation over the last five months is, is, is approaching 2%, 2.4% or so. 
And um, uh, I'm looking at what I see and, and indicator telling you we're in a bull market. So why, why should I fight it? Yes, I challenge you to give me a negative indicator. You gave me a negative economic indicator. It's not a negative stock indicator because the stock market is already down 30% or so. I'm asking for, I'm challenging you. Or challenge, I don't mean you, Jack. I'm yeah, challenging yeah. the bears out there to give me an indicator that has recently suggested that we're headed down another 35%. Now, there's this, this great analyst who use valuation. Oh, the market is so overvalued. And the fact that we're down 30%, we're still overvalued. And they said they projected a 90% decline in, in 2022. They projected that over the next six years, the market will be down 90%. We're only down 35%. So we haven't met their projections. Okay, that's true. We haven't met their projections. That doesn't mean the projections were correct. Right now, I see nothing, nothing suggesting that the market's going to collapse. Now, you can say there's a bear market rally. The S&P, the Nasdaq's up 14% of its lows. But these are the same people who said bear market rallies in the Nasdaq can approach 20 or 25% before they peak. So why are they suggesting the 14% rally is sufficient? I don't see, and even that, that's not an indicator. That's just a guess. Well, maybe it's a bear market rally, so it's over. I wouldn't see an indicator suggesting the market's headed lower, and I don't see any. Now, I did point out that the VXN suggests if we're in a bear market rally, it suggests the pop. And maybe that's true, we can't act on it because it also signals early in the bear market. I see nothing in the indicated picture that suggests a continued bear market from here. I see many, many things in the indicated picture that is compelling me to be long the market. I would go back to the, the indicator of the yield curve, and I'm struggling to find a recession that began before or, or during the yield curve was still going down. I, I'm looking at the, the 210 spread, and I'm also looking at the, the, the t- uh, three-month, 30-year spread, and it appears to me that before every recession, the yield curve steep, re-steepens again, either because uh, sh- long-term interest rates are going up or more likely the Federal Reserve is cutting because economic growth is, is so weak. So what do you suggest? You're saying that since, since the yield curve is down, and since we have not had a recession yet, the recession must be ahead of us, and therefore, the market's going to go lower. Well, qu- number one, I say, we don't know if we have a recession yet. You're right. The, the employment does not suggest we had a recession yet. But I don't know. I, I, I see many uh, fundamental indicators suggest we had a recession. I'll give you a couple of them right here. Okay, production index. The Institute for Supply Management Production Index is now at a recession level. We're now declining. We're, below, we're, at, we're at a level of 48 and a half. And um, that usually takes place during a contraction. In fact, some of the great uh, market analysts that I use uh, said that their recession indicator gave a signal in, um, in October, and that suggests we're in a recession based on the Institute for Supply Management Production Index. It shows production is contracting. So there are reasons to believe we're in a, a recession based on that, not in employment. But there's reason to think we had a higher. You know, the hedge, the hedge funds at the end of December were shorter than they were at the lows in 2020, shorter than they were at the lows in 2015 and 16, shorter than they were at the lows in 2011, but not as short as they were near the lows in 2008. So hedge funds are very, very short. Now, why are they short? You know why they're short? They're short because they're looking at the inverted yield curve. They're not looking at the market indicators. But you know, you don't want you, you want to fade hedge funds when basically they're they're, they're short the market, and that's what you know that's where we are now. I mean, the way you get, the, you get the hedge fund sentiment based on the uh, futures trading, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, and, and the largest uh, futures traders are net short to an extent that you haven't seen since 2008. That's the reason to be bullish. 
But I'm going to concede, yes, maybe I'm wrong, and maybe the recession did not yet take place, and maybe a recession takes place next year. But I only can concede to the maybe. Mm-hmm. I can't concede that there will be a recession coming up, because maybe we had a recession. So I can't concede that there will be a recession. I can say, yes, you're right, maybe there'll be a recession. But the market is telling me, A, either that there was a recession, B, either we have anticipated next year's recession, or C, maybe there won't be a recession at all. And uh, and the stimulus created by worldwide central banks, crazy stimulus for the 12 years from 2008 to 2020, it still has a positive effect, and I think that's the case. Or, or as I said earlier in the interview, maybe we are headed for a Great Depression, but there'll be a Goldilocks period when you shift from inflation to depression, there's a period six months to a year that really looks great. I mean, as it was from 19... You know, from 1928 to 1929, the Fed was tightening dramatically. Uh, the market, was, the economy was moving from inflation to deflation. And it was a Goldilocks period, certainly for stocks, because stocks boomed in a blow-off, final blow-off. So I can't say, uh, I don't want to project that, you know, great times ahead, but I will yeah. project great uh, great stock gains ahead. Don't be short. That's what I would say. Right. Yeah, well, well as uh, folks can gather, I have... Uh, a more bearish view uh, than you do, but I certainly concede that I could be wrong. And, and the price action has definitely taken taken me by surprise. It has not taken you by surprise. And very impressive that you nailed the Chinese low. I will say, Milton, I, I do agree with you. There are two things that you are quite constructive on that I'm also pretty uh, bullish on, which would be China. I, I didn't I didn't nail the bottom. Uh, I got in later. Uh, and then gold miners. Well, gold, gold, yeah, gold, gold in China have exploded great high. Great gold miners. Yeah. Now, you know, I manage the largest gold. In the 1980s, late 80s, I managed the largest gold fund in the United States. People aren't aware of that. They think I was basically involved in S&P, but I actually managed the largest gold fund. It was for Oppenheimer at the time. Oppenheimer Gold and Special Minerals. Now, those, you know, gold is a very unique, gold stocks particularly, is a very unique asset. Um, it, it's one of the worst, as a gold stock, a company that mines gold, how do I put this? It's one of the worst businesses you could be in. Mm-hmm. Imagine if you had a, 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 a pit with, with a thousand gold bars in it, right? And imagine every year you take 10 gold bars out and you, you, you list that as your earnings. You know, it cost me, cost me $5 to climb into my pit, take out the gold bar. I'm selling the gold bars at $1,800 an ounce. Well, and that's good. why the depreciation is so high. That, that makes sense. Exactly. Yeah, so okay. Gold, I was wondering why it is. So gold miners, to be successful, they have to constantly, constantly find new reserves. Yeah. Some of them are able to do it. Like the great gold mines in South Africa, we had, had a, a tremendous uh, undiscovered un, un, uh, reserves, you know, just way on the ground. But many of the gold stocks that we see that are in the GDX, really have limited reserves and really really hoping they'll find additional reserves in the future. Having said that, gold stocks are a very volatile, volatile group, and they have historically tremendous, tremendous rallies and tremendous, tremendous declines. And we think that, that the gold stock index, since they moved along with, since they moved along with the equity index, and this is the equity index bottom in, in, in this year, in June, October, we believe that the September 26 low in the GDX is a final low for the latest decline. GDX is up with some 48%. Now, unfortunately, I didn't trade it well. We got in 10% position near the lows in September. But we, when you had the first pullback, I lightened up to 5%. We're now up to a 10%, 12% position again in GDX. Unlike the MCHI, we got into the lows. In this case, we got in, but we got out, and we, we, we increased the position just in the last few days. 
But we think we're early in the bull move in GDX and in gold itself. But of course, generally, the gold stocks do better than gold. Although on a long-term basis, gold is a far better hold than the gold miners, simply because of the depreciation of the gold miners. You know, you have to rely on management. You have to rely on the, on the, um, on the management being competent. And you have to uh, um, manage on, on fraud. There's a lot of frauds going on because, you know, it's very easy to manipulate balance sheets. Yes. When you manage a gold stock as opposed to when you manage a, 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 a phone company or a, even a semiconductor company or whatever. You know, the, I mean, reserves, you don't even know what real reserves are. You don't even know what, uh, I mean, it's very difficult to manage a gold, a gold mining company. And you have a, so we had the UX is a basket of gold stocks. So we own that. Yes, very bullish on gold. But you're, I'm surprised that you're bullish on gold and you're not bullish on stocks. I'll tell you why I'm surprised, because the gold, gold market peaked in, in 2020. The GDX peaked in 2022. Um, it's not, not as latest peak. It's actually peak was in, 2000, um, in 2011. In 2000, uh, no, it's actually, yeah, it peaked in 2020. It's last peak. But the latest peak was in 2022, along with the S&P. S&P peaked in January. And the gold stocks peaked in June. The gold stocks declined dramatically into, into uh, September. It uh, declined uh, some 46% into September, and now it's rallied some 50% or so. Well, so you see it's moving along with stocks. When I managed a gold fund in Oppenheimer, I turned bullish on gold after the crash of 87, strictly because gold stocks were mo- crashed along with, with the S&P 500. So I said if they're, if they're moving along with the S&P 500 on the downside, they'll also move with it on the upside, which they did. So I would say, uh, Jack, I agree with you on, on gold stocks. But I don't think gold is, is, is separate from, from, from equities. I think if gold stocks do well, equities do well. But of course, gold stocks should do far better than equities because gold stocks don't have the run-up that equities had into 2021. So GDX at this point is down 51% of its peak in 2011. Mm-hmm. So for that reason, GDX is more undervalued. Except remember, gold stocks are very difficult, difficult to value. It's, it's not an easy game to play. But I agree with you, yes, gold stocks is a place to be at this point. But I would say if you're bullish in gold stocks, you've got to be bullish in equities in general. But I, I know I could be wrong on that. You know, from in, in 1930, from 1930 to 1932, uh, 1929, 1932, off the lows in 29, home mining, which is a premier gold stock, was up 1,000%. Well, the SP was down 85%. So there, there have been times in the past where gold stocks traded contrary, uh, counter to, to, to equities. But that's not always the case. I know in the in the eighties, gold stocks and, and, and equities moved in the same direction. And again, now in the last year or so or two, gold stocks and equities moved in the same direction. Realize something? Don't realize? Although gold stocks uh, by home stake mining peaked uh, a rally a thousand percent from uh, 1929 lows to its peak in 1932, while the market was down 90 percent or so. Silver did not bottom until the market bottomed in 1932. Silver did not move along with gold. So, you know, even gold and silver and precious metal stocks, they're not uniform. You got a real analysis to understand it, but you got me because I'm long GDX as you are. So we certainly agree about that. There we go. Milton, uh, my, my final, by, by the way, Milton, I just want to say you, met, you mentioned your Twitter account. People should definitely check out your, your Twitter account at uh, Berg Milton. Yeah. And, you know, we're very blessed that we can you know, read your insights as, as they sort of. Well, first of all, I can't give insights on a timely basis because my clients, I only right. give advice what I give my clients. But I got to be given at a delayed basis because my clients pay me, uh, and, and Twitter account doesn't. Secondly, I have to be always on Twitter. I'm not, I'm not doing it out of benevolence. I'm not doing it to give people indicators that I spent years working on. I'm really doing it to try to generate uh, leads for my uh, 
institutional account. I don't have a big sales force. I'm a very small operation. I really yeah, of course. I work 24-7, trying to, uh, over 24-6, trying to do my work and trying to come up with these insights. And we're just trying to expand our business. And we have a great business. We have some of the titans of Wall Street are our clients. Yes. But uh, no reason trying to expand it. And secondly, since we're publishing a book on our indicators sometime late this year, early next year, Twitter is a way to uh, get interest in the book. And believe it or not, though, if any publishers, book publishers out there, we, we approached one of the major uh, financial book publishers. They turned me down saying, because I don't have a Twitter following. Well, I wasn't going to be on Twitter. I'm an institutional guy. But he said, okay, I said, I'll do him a favor. I'll get him a Twitter following. You know, we, I just started a couple of months ago. I, I, I really only have about 9,000. 8,500 maybe followers, which is not a lot, but I don't even know. I, I, I'm not going to spend my time trying to get a Twitter following. I want to spend my time trying to call the markets properly. But I appreciate you mentioning Twitter. If any institutions watching this or any uh, home offices or any individuals that are willing to pay institutional type of money for research. But yes, I, 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 like, I like to give a, a taste of my work on Twitter, but really it's just a small fraction of what we really do. And I I appreciate you mentioning it. I appreciate this interview. I think the interview has gone pretty well. I, w- I would say so too, Milton. And yeah, I would say that. Job, Jack. Thank you. Thank you, Milton. I would say, um, yeah, what we've talked about in this interview is just a small fraction of, of your work. So, you know, only yeah. your, your clients get access to that. Um, Milton, I do have a final question for you, which yes. is about uh, bonds. The, the whole aspect of the yield curve, the 10 year note, 30 year bond, as well as perhaps, I don't know, the shorter end, the two year notes. Uh, what technical indicators uh, are indicating about that? Because as you know, 2022 was one of the worst years for the treasury uh, bonds uh, on a nominal basis and on an inflation adjusted basis uh, ever. I think on a nominal basis, it it, it was very, very bad. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, what do you think about bonds? You're bullish on stocks. Are you bullish on bonds? And this is in the sixties, sixties and seventies. When you had the inflationary period, he called bonds certificates of guaranteed confiscation because yields were never sufficient to compensate for inflation. And uh, you bought a bond and they paid you interest and the interest value of the interest you received went down year after year on inflation. I think bonds are again going to be certificates of guaranteed confiscation, but maybe for a different reason. Maybe because of inflation will we'll be with us over the next decade, even though right now inflation is coming down. But more importantly, because maybe we're going to, this, this is another thing I talk to my clients about, and we really didn't touch upon this, but I happen to be a big deflationist on the long term. I think there's too much debt out there, and either the governments are going to uh, inflate, and therefore they're going to default on the debt through inflation, or they may be forced to default on the debt through deflation, which means you know they won't be able to pay off their loans. So if that happens, then uh, many, many corporate bonds out there won't be able to pay off the debt. So it'll be a significant guarantee confiscation because you really won't get your principal back. So yes, I'm, I'm negative on bonds over the long term. This sh- short-term one-year decline in bonds, I think, is just a a, a, uh, a a signal to what we may see over the next decade or so. But again, I'm really flexible on this because I can make a, a bull, you know, when it comes to bonds, you can make a, easily make a bullish or bearish case. It really depends, mostly depends on future inflation rates or deflation rates or disinflation rates, but I happen to be a deflationist uh, because I think as when Feds worldwide ease, they don't print money; they allow credit to expand. And when credit to expands, ultimately credit has to contract, and when credit contracts, it's deflationary. That's another long story. Maybe we'll do another interview on deflation and inflation. It's not for this point. No, but the answer was no. I'm negative on bonds. They had a bear market. It deserves a nice rally for a while. But long term, I do not think we've seen the low 
seeing the high in yield and the low in bonds. I don't think so. Right. So this deflationary scenario that you, you see, Milton, I can see why that would be bad for corporate bonds, the loan market, particularly high yield, riskier stuff. But if you know, we have severe disinflation, as we've had over the past few months, so that inflation runs to 2% an, an, uh, annualized, and maybe even below that, wouldn't that be a pretty positive environment for bonds? If you want for government bonds, you mean? Yeah, yeah, government bonds. That's what I meant. Sorry. Well, you know, I think the government, uh, if the government was honest, let's put it this way, the government borrowed in gold rather than in paper dollars, they'd be bankrupt pretty soon. They can't, they can't pay it off. I mean, they were bankrupt. And Nixon, when he closed the gold market, basically with the declaration of bankruptcy for the United States. You know, the United States used to have a treasury. You know what the definition of a treasury is? A treasury is, a, is a, a treasury is, you know, is, a, is, a, is where you store money. There should, there should no longer be U.S. Treasury. There should be a U.S. debt uh, um, um, uh, ministry. Because the U.S. doesn't have treasury. The U.S. has, has, has uh, owes money all over the world. Used to, uh, the United States used to be a, a, um, a, um, a creditor nation when I, was, when I was young, when I was first even in the business. The U.S. is now a debtor nation. There's no treasury. So ultimately, if they'd be honest, they'd default. If not honest, they're going to inflate. If they inflate, the price of bonds will go down. If the price of bonds go down, that itself is deflationary because all of the billions of dollars that people invest in bonds will go down in value in deflation because um, if they're in inflation, so the price of bonds will deflate. So mm -hmm. while you have an inflation, you have deflation in bonds. So it is really a catch-22 here. I don't see how the U.S. can get, worldwide governments, certainly U.S. can get out of this. And they claim there were about 120% or so debt to GDP. But if you include Social Security and you include the uh, off-balance sheet debt, we need more like 300% debt to GDP. There's no way an honest government can cover it up. Now, having to be Trump, um, President Trump did a great job, along with Larry Kudlow. They did a they, they did a they did a great job in, in 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 trying to set up low taxes and a growth rate, and they're on a trajectory for growth to outpace debt increases. If the United States growth can out their, their increase in debt, ultimately it'll be a balance, and ultimately we'll have a great economy long term. But the Democrats aren't working on that. The Federal Reserve isn't helping with that. And uh, I don't know whether we'll ever have that, you know, but uh, now the rate of debt is growing tremendously. And, the, you know, as, as taxes go up and as corporations are hindered due, uh, due to the latent socialism that the Democratic platform is, is looking at, it, it'd be very difficult, very difficult for uh, economic growth to outpace increase in debts. So this is another long topic. I just want to tell you my view on bonds is negative. Um, and even if we have a uh, infl an inflationary period, um, uh, you know, you're saying they'll do QE and they'll keep buying the bonds, keep them declining. Maybe that's an experiment they tried. I don't think they can continue doing that again. So it's, there's, there's a lot of a lot to be said about about bonds that we really can't do in just a couple of minutes that are left. Yeah, Absolutely. we'll have to do that next time. Milton, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on, sharing your insights. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Again, you can find Milton on Twitter at BergMilton and his website, uh, MiltonBerg.com. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Enjoy it. Thank you.